Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast. Uh, you guys know by now, David, co-host, we are, have a little bit of a different thing going on. We've got friends in the studio, or studio, whatever, Zoom room today. And so it's this is like real happy hour. I mean, this is like real conversations. And so we're going to find out what you guys are drinking. But I, I put something together before we all got on that's really interesting. And I want, David, you can lead with this after we figure out what we're drinking. But David is now writing letters to his son's former uh, private Jewish school. We know Andrew Gutman because he is the, his letter to the Brearley School went viral on what Barry Weiss's Substack. Then Paul Rossi is with us. And we know Paul because his letter also published by Barry to, as a teacher, about how he's not gonna indoctrinate his students. And then I'm actually working on a book of letters on how we talk about race. So we're like this weirdo band of misfit letter writers. That's our, maybe that's how we all came together. So, okay. So what are, what is each misfit drinking for this conversation? Well, I just have Poland Spring here. I didn't know I was supposed to bring something a little harder to this event. No one told me that. You didn't put that in the email. I mean, we kind of know each other. Oh, like, my God. Right. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, 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 never mind. All right. <laughs> Paul. I'm, uh, I'm also drinking uh, good old, um, uh, you know, dihydrochloride monoxide uh, in um, the uh, WeWork uh, aluminum stein. Uh, really I hate drinking out of metal. I don't know how you feel about that. Branding. Yeah, you definitely get a little bit of an aftertaste with, with your with your uh, water, but you know, it's okay. So you don't they still have plastic cups, but they, you know, environmentally they, they switch to those. Wait, would you like not drink anything out of a can, Andrew? That's metal. Yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't be my choice. If I'm drinking water, I'd rather it out of not, Plastic. not those metal yeah. cups. My grandfather refused to drink out of any cans because he said he couldn't see what was inside. <laughs> so he, he thought that the, you know, they might put like a, there might be like a dead mouse in there unless he could see it. So, <laughs> David, are you, like drinking, are you drinking it's like razor glass? blades in your Halloween candle? And <laughs> I'm, I'm drinking scotch today because this is in my last meeting of the work week. Um, so hey. I'm, I'm drinking. Well, I'm drinking out of a can, and I'm drinking hard kombucha because I've decided if I'm going to drink alcohol, I might as well be healthy about it. So yeah, hard kombucha out of a can. Nice. <laughs> I, Good for the gut flora. <laughs> just so you know, I dispute the health benefits of it, but that's okay. Go ahead. Okay, well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know how I feel afterwards. <laughs> I so can't David, even have coconut water. It why? Just, you know, it goes right through me. I don't know. There's something weird going on. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> What if you put vodka in your coconut water? That's, I don't know. Maybe it would, uh, maybe it would make it uh, take care of that problem. I don't know. I know you're here Figured in Austin. They're all into like healthy drinks. And so, yes, you can get like healthy cocktails. So anyways, hey, David, so you have been right on a letter writing campaign recently with your school. Tell us a little bit about how that's going. So uh, my kids went to a school. I'll, I'll mention it because it, I, it's a public letter. It's I called the Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School. Um, it's a very good pluralistic Jewish day school with a reputation for teaching critical thinking and uh, high-level Jewish studies. I always felt that it was a very intellectually open place that encouraged my older son who graduated there to discuss and debate issues. Um, I have to say I wasn't that surprised when somebody recently pointed out that they had embraced a DEIJ, uh, Diversity, Equity, <laughs> Inclusion, and Justice. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say something with Ju Judaism. <laughs> That's why I was laughing. <laughs> okay. No, it's justice, just plain old justice. Um, and, uh, and then I looked at it, and the framework 
sounded uh, suspiciously similar to every other DEI initiative I've ever seen, you know, uh, the examining the relationship between uh, power and privilege and whatever. Um, and then I looked at the student resources and it's a list of websites and articles. And I went, I started going through the websites and the articles and literally there was not one single entry that could have been described as alternative or heterodox. Every single article reinforced the same point and some of them, you know, in, a, in rather extreme terms. So I decided to work with a colleague of mine who actually brought it to my attention. She's a wonderful woman, black Jewish woman named Brandy Shafatinsky. And we, she's an educator, PhD educator. We wrote a, a joint letter to the school saying we appreciate what the school has done for our children. Um, and yet we were taken aback by this. And we would have given the school the benefit of the doubt, but the school never had, a, did not have a single alternative reading assignment there. And we, we think that's unfortunate. That's what we said. Um, and uh, of course, I'm getting, you know, called a racist and people are going ballistic, but there's a lot of people coming, as they usually do behind the scenes, messaging me, asking me for meetings, and we'll see where it goes. Um, so that's where we are with it. But I did post it on a major Jewish education Facebook group with thousands and thousands of members, and it was taken down yesterday. It was not deemed worthy of a discussion within this Jewish educator community. Who are the moderators for that? Do you know them? I mean, I know a bunch of them because I was originally involved with setting up the, I was one of the early people in, in this Jewish educator site. So it's really, really dis despairing in a way to, to go through that. And, it, you know, the, and, and pe the people call you a racist and then other people agreeing, like, like, they'll have like, 20 likes on that one thing and from people I know, you know, um, and have known me for a long time and they're, they're liking the statement that says I'm a racist. Um, I don't even know how to regard that. Um, so anyway, um, David, did anyone are, reach out to you privately? There, well, the there were, uh, a teacher from the school said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a whole group of us who have been talking behind the scenes and um, he's not ready to come out publicly yet, but he is. We are talking to him um, in the middle of next week, and we'll see where it goes. And several parents have. I've had meetings with him, so it's uh, hard. But you know, I, I I'm thankful I have great role models. Um, I you know very early on in me taking the leap into this field, um, I read about this guy named Paul Rossi and Barry Weiss's sub Substack who had exercised uh, moral courage and uh, intellectual courage. And then not too long afterwards, it must have been within a week or two, I read about this guy, Andrew Gutman, who writes this letter. And um, I, 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 I was inspired by both incidents. And I'm, I'm glad to have uh, both, of, count both of you as, as friends and colleagues and, uh, and you know, brothers in this uh, this major fight that we're all finding ourselves in to preserve the liberal operating system of our society. I mean, Paul, I don't know, maybe we can start with Paul a little bit. Paul, um, and I'm, I'm, by the way, sister, by the way, as well. I'm glad to have a sister in uh, Jennifer Richmond, who's been my, uh, you know, one of my closest <laughs> partners and making good trouble, making good trouble. Good trouble, good trouble. Right. Yeah, so, so Paul, um, you you went through this, and a lot of people have read about it. Um, what's your life been? Maybe describe it very briefly. Give us the Reader's Digest version, and then describe how that it's affected your life since. Sure. Um, you know the sh the short uh, version is um, I'd been um, I had been a math teacher at a you know uh, private school in Manhattan, Grace Church School, for about nine for nine years. And uh, in 2015, they they shifted their mission statement and went to a full uh, anti-racist mission as well as, and then the DEI uh, curriculum started to expand. And then I really, I had been uh, raising some flat red flags about what was going on among the student body and, and um, you know, in, in the curriculum, I thought they were excesses uh, and I was basically ignored. And then uh, February of this year, 2021, there was a segregated, racially segregated Zoom re meeting 
uh, with white identifying students and faculty in one room and BIPOC identifying students and faculty in another Zoom room where they got substantially different content. I was in the white room and uh, I they put up the white supremacy slide, which talks about the characteristics of white supremacy, including individualism and objectivity and, uh, and all kinds of those terrible things. And I objected to I objected uh, by, you know, I didn't I didn't actually object directly. I, I wanted to set an example for the students so that I knew there were students out there that had problems with this. And I wanted to model for them, you know, how to that that their teacher might also have problems with this and how to how to ask questions about it. And when I started to do that, um, some of the students started to speak up or started to ask questions and speak up and give different perspectives. And then the teacher started to ask questions. And the end, then there were a series of uh, for for weeks afterwards, there was a series of segregated and how a teacher like myself, um, how irresponsible it was for me to question the tenets of the anti-racist mission in the Zoom meeting, which really wasn't what I was doing. Um, you know, I'm committed to anti-racism, to genuine anti-racism. Uh, but the upshot of it was I was disciplined. And uh, then um, I was subjected to a series of meetings. And there was a statement read to every student in the school about what I had done. And and ultimately, it got to be uh, very strange and kind of ridiculous. Uh, and the breaking point for me was when a student came to me to offer private support, but he was he was nervous and scared that one of his more left wing teachers would see him coming to me. Um, and you know that. So then I wrote an article for uh, Barry Weiss's Substack, and that was very popular. And shortly after that, I was barred from the school building. The classes were taken away and uh, my contract expired. Uh, so here I am. And so so since then, I've been doing a lot of thinking, reading, writing. I've been going to different conferences. I've been working with different organizations. I've learned I've learned so much about what's been going on, not just in New York, but nationally uh, among the private schools system, the public school system, uh, how it's affecting how this is affecting the culture more broadly and, and trying to find ways to, I'm really kind of trying to focus on ways to uh, push back or effective methods of what they would call praxis, I suppose. Uh, what are what are some things that ordinary people can do in the situations they find themselves in that might make a difference or set an example? So that's what I've been really focused on. So Andrew, tell us about what your story was and what it is. Yeah. So my story was my daughter was at a all girls, uh, pretty prestigious K through 12 school in, in Manhattan called the Brearley school. And she had been there since kindergarten and she was in sixth grade. And, you know, we saw what we now call for lack of a better term, the critical race theory or the social justice kind of creep into the curriculum, you know, a tiny bit over or a little bit, I should say, over the years, but nothing to the point where we would say, you know, we're not going to keep her in this school. And then the, the two summers ago with the events of George Floyd and BLM, it was like a light switch went off and the mission of the school and a lot of these independent schools just changed overnight from, you know, teaching, from training intellectually courageous girls to training social justice warriors to training activists, a complete change of mission. And we knew that a lot of families like ours, uh, and I say this then, I say, you know, I still say this now, more than half of the families were very unhappy with the direction of the school. And we started to talk to them um, from the beginning of the school year in September. And we could not get other families to speak up. We had a lot of people say, you know, I should send a letter. I should send an email. And this was COVID time. So people, parents were not allowed in the school. They're still not allowed in the school. Our school really went so far uh, beyond a lot of the other independent schools because we had to not only sign a community agreement or a pledge saying that we would support this not only within the school, but we would help teach these anti-racism principles at home. And we wound up refusing to sign that. And we had to take two mandatory anti-racism sessions for parents. Um, so there was no excuse for parents not knowing what was going on. Different 
than in a lot of other schools where parents, you know, maybe only heard about this by overhearing their kids on Zoom school. You know, there was no excuse for really parents not to know what they were teaching, uh, at least to some extent, because we had to take these mandatory sessions for parents. And, you know, we, we said, okay, at some point, we've got to get other parents to speak up. They've got to speak up. They know this is wrong. They know this is damaging their kids' education. They know this is destroying the school. And to our knowledge, nobody did. And so we decided not to re-enroll our daughter for the next school year. And that was a joint decision, myself, my wife, and my daughter. And if my daughter had wanted to stay in the school, we would have absolutely let her and we would have just tried to fight this quietly within the school. But she knew that she wasn't getting the education that, that we wanted, that she wanted, that we had signed up for. So she was supportive. And at that point, I said, okay, I'm going to do something. And I felt it was not professionally cancelable. So I wasn't worried about losing my job. And I thought, you know, somebody had to do something. So I, I wrote a letter that uh, I mailed to every family in the school, which was 656 families. I think the only three I didn't send to were three that had overseas addresses. And it uh, unexpectedly went viral. I never really thought it would be read by anybody other than these uh, really families. I thought maybe, maybe it gets picked up in the sort of New York City gossipy press that likes to talk about these very expensive you know, private schools. But I never expected it to go viral. And Barry Weiss found me, actually. I was on the phone. Uh, I mailed a letter on a Wednesday, Friday afternoon. I started to get calls from parents. Uh, I think around one o'clock, I got a call. Then I got another call uh, from, a, from a parent of our grade. And then I had this email from Barry saying, you know, text me, email me. You've got to contact me. I'm posting this. It's, you know, And so the next few days were sort of a blur. I think the next about five days. And then the first event I did, and I said, no, I had, you know, every, every show on Fox wanted to, wanted me on. I think, you know, Paul probably had the same experience. Um, but, you know, sort of, I decided not to do any media for the first week or two, but the first event I did was one with Paul. In fact, this is the first event we've done together since really, uh, which was Barry Weiss's, I think, first live stream event that she had ever had. Oh, yeah, That's right. Yeah. That, was was that your first house. event? Was that your first? I, also? The first Did, thing I was on was the clubhouse. That was the I think it was the night it came. My article came out of the night after yeah. that, and I was completely fried. Okay, I can't remember I was what I was that. saying. Yeah. yeah, I remember. You sounded coherent. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, so yeah, I get this email from Barry after that event. He's like, "You need to eat more." This is Barry being like the Jewish mom, right? You got to eat more. I look too thin. People, I guess people told her that I look too thin on this, but we really, we didn't sleep or eat for like the first five days. I think that event was about five days after my letter, something like yeah. that. So that sort of changed my life. Sure. So um, I have this sense that your critique of this is not just, um, you know, teaching of a view you disagree with on on disparity or race or racism, but there's a larger critique of God that it's somehow corruptive of education in a in a broader way. Am I wrong about that? And if um what what is your take on that? That like you Andrew, you took your your daughter out of the school and she wasn't learning anything anymore. You know, was it just about what you didn't want her to learn or was it how did it corrupt the larger educational process in your view? Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's what she was learning and what she was not learning. Um, they incorporated, again, what they call their anti-racism initiatives, what, you know, broadly we now call sort of CRT, into every aspect of the curriculum. Uh, not just, you know, with these special DEI seminars, not just in English and history, but they incorporated this into art and music and science and math. And so there's a number of things. There's sort of the, the gutting of the English literature and history curriculum. Um, and, and to me, that's really, really important. I'm a big believer in, in sort of classical education and that every kid um, should get some of that. History, especially history and civics, I think, is something that we do horrifically in schools, private and public, even before this whole sort of CRT issue. And now it's even that much worse. But that this was incorporated you know, into everything, I think. So there is this ideology that I do not think kids should be taught. And then there is what is not being taught. Again, the history, the civics. Uh, I think there were five books in the sixth grade uh, Eng English class that, you know, they had historically always taught. And I think they they kept one of them last year, um, you know, which was, I forget what, oh, it was the Iliad or the Odyssey, I think. But the other four, I think one was Shakespeare, my, one might have been Dickens, I don't remember. Um, you know, they got it for what is now the identity politics or social justice kind of kind of books. Um, but I think broadly speaking, you know, I've said this a lot, which is my letter 
you know, was, was criticized, called a racist, all those things. But to me, it was never about race. It was about the inability, the unwillingness of these schools to have discussions on these issues. And it was about the indoctrination. And I know I get pushback on that a lot. Um, I, I know a lot of us in this movement sort of get pushback when we use the word indoctrination. That's too strong, you know, but it really was. And again, to the to the sense that we as parents had to sign a pledge that we would teach this in the home. I mean, to me, that's, you know, as as, as much indoctrination as anything could be. You know, they teach Singapore math. We don't have to sign a pledge supporting that. They teach the theory of evolution. We don't have to sign a pledge supporting that. They taught Mandarin, you know, to all the kids. We don't have to sign a pledge supporting that. So um, I think that was much more than just the you know, specific CRT stuff was that, you know, they changed the mission. And that I think they really are indoctrinating these kids, that there isn't the ability, the comfort to be able to speak freely in the classroom, both teachers and students. They can't ask the questions. They have to, uh, you know, adhere to this ideology. And it goes, I, I say this, it goes really beyond that. Not only have to they, do they have to be anti-racist, right? If you're not an anti-racist, you're a racist. But even to be an anti-racist is not enough. You have to be an activist. If you're not an activist, you are a racist. I mean, that's as far as they went. So I think it's all these things together. Well, you know, what's worse is um, in addition to being called racist, you know, a lot of us now have been lumped into the domestic terrorist category uh, as well. So we've got that. And that goes to something, David, you were talking about the National Association of School Boards letter uh, to Merrick Garland and that they were saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that they were saying that, that no one's really teaching racism, that only 8% what's or, that only eight percent of teachers or crt CRT. yeah not right yeah right right and then but that's the, the, the that goes to what andrew is saying it's not teaching crt right it's not actually having a class called crt or ethnic studies it's the fact that it's like infiltrated into all the ways that we teach i mean paul you were a teacher how did you see that play out with with you in you know on the ground well, I think, yeah, just to, to, to speak to that about the CRT and the claim that it's not CRT, I mean, it really is a very narrow objection about the, you know, the particular focus on CRT. What, what's actually happening, there are two things that are happening. One is that there are CRT derived theories that have, that are broadly from that trunk and branches off that trunk, like critical whiteness studies is one, critical gender studies. So these these are things that incorporate some of those um, you know those foundational insights from the seventies, uh, but and then the second thing is that an, an important part of this is praxis. So there's no um, you know from the foundational texts, critical race theory and introduction, Delgado, Stefanik, all these things they're always talking about praxis. So what is praxis? Well, praxis is going out into the field taking over these educational institutions and then indoctrinating the kids into becoming, you know, better, better people, uh, according to the theory. So that's, you know, they may not be teaching the content, particularly, they finesse it in two ways. One is that they're not teaching the specific content that they teach in law schools. Um, and then the second thing is that, you know, it's what's more important is the practice. So when you, when you actually, every time you move down a level from, you know, the, the academic work to the conferences to the teacher trainings to uh, the student trainings to the to the you know poor schlubby teacher in the classroom who gets handed a slide deck and, that, and then they're going to put that in front of the kids and then the kids themselves you have this sort of you know degradation of nuance and academies into the, and it gets sort of rendered into this uh, you know basically the 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 racism of these teachings is readily apparent in that they create a moral imperative and a, and a moral schism between the races as to who's uh, who's an oppressor, who's the oppressed, who's good, who's bad. And the kids interpret this in, in terms of moral primary colors. So what I what really bothered me the most uh, after that long preamble is the psychological impact of the students' self-concept. And so they they started in ninth grade uh, with these DEI interventions, the curriculum focused around how the student sees themselves and the most salient feature of their identity is their race. So if you are Jewish, Italian, uh, Scandinavian, you know, even Persian, you're not, um, 
you're not your ethnicity or nationality. You are those things. But really what matters in the context of American society is your race, your whiteness. And, you know, ha having that, you know, gives you a certain set of assumed privileges for which you should try to, um, you know, that you should, you should, you're given a sort of set of a marching orders on how you're supposed to behave as an ally, like you mentioned, Jennifer, and, and how you may, or even perhaps a co-conspirator or, or an accomplice. And so they have this whole language, you know, strangely around war and crime that, that the students interpolate or interject into themselves this sense of, of their own culpability, responsibility. It doesn't matter their provenance or their, their ancestry. What matters is, you know, this anticipation that because they're seen a certain way or, the, or, or they're told that they're seen a certain way, that, that this, you know, and, and on the, you know, for black students, that means that, you know, it's very important that you interject this black identity. You know, people, this is, these are culturally real things, even if they may not be biologically real. Um, but what was what they were being taught was that there is a way to be politically back black. There's a solidarity. There's a there's an authentic identity, a way to be a certain thing that if you don't align with that, well, then you're not really um, you're not you know, you're not really getting it. And so um, they there would be a lot of, you know, pressure both within the classroom, I think, and outside the classroom to join affinity groups, to to have the students align their views with their what what the school, you know, believed their race meant that they should think. And, and this was really debilitating. I, I saw, you know, to to some black students that, you know, were starting to really look upon uh, the school itself. And, the, you know, the, they would talk about uh, the importance of of going to a school where people look like them. And I think this is, you know, that's, there's some truth to this is like, it is difficult. There are cultural differences, but that is a extremely parochial provincial way of, you know, these schools are supposed to open you up to different things and and ideas and give you opportunities to see other points of view. And what was happening was that the students were being becoming, um, you know, really looking for themselves in, in this way that was kind of denying them the opportunities that, that, you know, being in these schools was supposed to offer. And so it was limiting. I felt it was extremely limiting to, to their sense of possibility. Did you also see, I mean, was this also for you the, the George Floyd BLM summer that just shifted, or, did, or was this at Grace Church, was this going on much before that? This was happening before, but you know, it definitely accelerated. Uh, with the George Floyd and uh, George, you know, George Floyd murder and the response of the administration there, you know, during that time um, was, you know, kind of staggered me. It really shocked me a little bit. Um, there was a letter that I believe seven or nine black students sent to the administration. They called for the canceling of classes, which were at the end of the, you know, end of the term uh canceling of all tests uh because they had been subjected to so-called white opinions around the events of george floyd and that you know this was causing exhaustion and you know you know i can imagine it being difficult uh but no one could ever answer my question about what a white opinion was what does it mean to have a white opinion and what does that mean that we're starting to take that for granted like that is something and that should justify something? So that was frightening to me. And that, that made me really think about the whole thing going off the rails. And we're, we're entering in sort of like witch hunt territory here. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the shocking things about this discourse is how almost infinitely malleable it seems to me. Like there's almost as if there's some central authority who sort of sends out the talking points to everybody um, in, in the woke movement and says, okay, here's what we're going to say now. So the, the latest, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on this, the latest wrinkle is in this Northern Texas school district, um, I think called South Lake, Texas. Um, yesterday, some ridiculous administrator who's anti-CRT said that uh, that the school should teach now has to teach opposing views on the Holocaust because we believe that we should teach opposing views um, on racism. And uh, of course, that's ridiculous, like as uh, 
But now I'm getting all kinds of inquiry about, well, if, am I not just going down a slippery slope? Once you say we should have opposing views on structural racism, aren't we saying that we can have opposing views on the Holocaust? Uh, what, what, what would you say to that? You were both, uh, both been enmeshed in this uh, and same with you, Jennifer. What would you say to that uh, so-called logic? I don't know the exact legislation in Texas that that I think prompted that. I don't I don't know if you have. Yeah, there's a, I have it here somewhere, but yeah, it's no. I mean, there's House a limit. I mean, this is right. You know, there there's I have you know a lot of our side of this issue, uh, and, and Paul and I were just at a conference up in Boston called the Diversity of Thought in K through 12 Education, and you know a lot of us are saying you know what what's the flip side of this? It's diversity of thought. And to some extent, that's right. Um, but clearly, there is a limit, right, to, to your point. There's a limit on, you know, you don't, uh, you know, always want to want to have two sides of everything. And, and even on the issue of indoctrination, I mean, I, I sort of think about this. I mean, we need to write about this. You know, to some extent, all education is indoctrination, right? There's a, there's a, there's a you know, there's indoctrination, there's inculcation, there's just education. But, you know, it's all to some extent a, you know, a, a line of the same thing. And look, I want kids that have good values, right? I mean, you want kids to be able to ask questions and feel free to ask questions. And, and even if they're silly, even if they're, they're sometimes inappropriate, um, but schools do have a responsibility for teaching certain things. And, and you know, one of the things I think we should be teaching is sort of classical liberal values, enlightenment values, America's founding principle values. That doesn't mean you don't uh, introduce Karl Marx to something, but it does mean that you say, okay, these are the the reason we can have free speech in this country is because we have these certain principles. Um, the reason we have a, a prosperous society is because we have these these you know capitalist free market principles. At least we used to, uh, not not Marxist. So, um, you know, th this is a tricky question of how far do you go? You need free speech in the classroom, clearly, but I think there is responsibility for schools to teach. And, and many things, the right thing. And we do teach two plus two equals four. You know, someone can ask why that is, but it isn't just as valid to say, no, that's not correct, because that is correct. So right. I, I, I don't and know if I answered the question. The, the, and, and the fact that there are edge cases in gray areas doesn't negate the principle of a free expression of ideas, right? Like right. we can understand that, it, that at certain times it gets really hard um, to decide whether something crosses into sort of uh, crosses any red lines. But but in a society that values free speech, we're going to err on the side of free speech. And we're, right. more than we are going to err on the side of trying to rein somebody trying to rein somebody in. But I think, you know, I think this right? gets to the issue of this this, you know, ban CRT legislation, which I know is somewhat controversial, even amongst, you know, the anti-CRT people, is do you go down this slippery slope of actually doing more harm than good? Uh, I, you know, and I've seen some of these debates. I mean, I am a proponent of in public schools where free speech issues are somewhat different. These are government schools. These are government employees. You don't necessarily, they don't have, the kids might have the free speech. Uh, the teachers being government employees don't necessarily have the same, um, you know, constitutional protections. I am a fan of banning it, but, but you know, it's tricky because if you go too far one way or another, you may do more harm than good. So I think you've got to be, you know, those legislators that are looking at this have to be very careful with that. Um, and I do kind of see both sides of that issue. Yeah, Paul, what about you? Yeah, with the, with the um, you know, do you teach, you know, can we teach alternative views on the Holocaust, say? Um, I think that's a really interesting, you know, it's a very interesting way to try to, you know, shift the debate. And it reminds me actually of the creationists um, who would talk about, um, you know, uh, what was it called design or you know, this different alternate theory of the beginning of the universe and why can't we give that equal time in physics, for example. And so I think at that point, you know, one of the things that helped me think about those questions was Jonathan Rush's book, Kindly Inquisitors. One of yes. the first, I think that was, that come out it's as early as the nineties. What yeah. a, what a prescient book. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, he, he talks about liberal science being the, you know, where you would maybe draw the line. And so, you know, it's very clear that with something like the Holocaust, there's evidence, right? We have clear, strong evidence that this thing occurred and you have historians that poured over this, you know, for 
there are eyewitnesses. And so you can really say very clearly, like, no, you know, for the same reason that we don't believe, you know, the moon is made of green cheese, we're going to teach, uh, teach that the Holocaust happened. This is not the same kind of thing. You're talking about a, a theory, really a religion, a religion in itself, which is what I, th the way I see, and many others see, um, critical race theory derived praxis in schools where there's a moral, a certain moral imperative and what it means to be a good person, you know, a push to activism, um, and a whole belief structure. Like those are not objective realities, even though they may think they are, they're not objective realities that are subject to debate. So uh, I look at those two things very differently. I find it interesting that someone would try to make those things the same. Yeah. And I lean towards, I think what Andrew said, I mean, Two plus two equals four. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Holocaust is where CRT is is a, it, well, I guess it's what both of y'all said. I mean, CRT is is a theory, and you know, not a truth. But you it's know, a belief that's being represented as knowledge. Is the way I would put it, you know, and that is wrong. You know that I mean, to the if I could continue to the point of the you know should it be banned in schools? Uh, I, I agree with Andrew for the most part. And uh, I think that's even more true for if you're talking about kindergarten through eighth grade, you really need to have a single moral framework for children that are below a certain age. And that should really be set by the community. I think the community should have some say in exactly what that is and what the Overton window of education is there, because I don't know how you could teach, you know, two incommensurate moral systems to, you know, uh, children that could lead to some serious chaos when you get to like ninth or 10th or 11 you could maybe start to bring in okay some people say this about um you know the constitution some people say this and so i know there are curricula out there that that present differing sides of an issue and different theories and then the students can make up their own minds um but you know certainly in higher education i would say yeah i mean I think where the where the problem gets in when you try to ban specific content like the 1619 project as opposed to banning a divisive practice. So if you ban you know, if you say you can't teach this thing, I think that that is it's actually silly to expect that it'll work because any teacher worth their salt can get around it by you know if, by just telling the kids I'm not allowed to teach you this. You know, and you can ask me any question you want about it as long as it comes from you. I mean, that's just like setting setting the whole thing up to collapse. Uh, and you're going to get a serious Streisand effect with that. Um, but if you say, you know, you can't, you can't expressly try to make one racial group feel, you know, worse than another. That may happen as a consequence of teaching some, you know, if you teach about slavery, then maybe some people feel bad. But if you expressly try to do things that make one, which which was happening in my school. And, you know, at other schools to make one group responsible, basically blood guilt, uh, ancestral guilt, well, even when their ancestors may have nothing to do with something, then uh, then that's bad. There are violations of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, right? There are things like and I, I think that, you know, the idea of a privilege, uh, what is it called? The privilege stack where people have to sort themselves out based on where they fit into the hierarchy of privilege and then are either empowered to speak or prevented from speaking, depending on where they fall into that matrix. To me, that's that's a violation of their their civil rights. So I have no problem uh, using that to, uh, you know, if, if the school crosses the line there, you know, so I guess it depends on what you're talking about when you say teach CRT in school. I guess I haven't figured out what that means yet. In some ways, I feel like both the, the right and the left, if you will, I'm not sure those are good descriptions, are, are sort of both in their own way misrepresenting what, what CRT is. You know, to me, CRT is sort of a, it's sort of a framework that starts with a systems level analysis of society and says um, racism is embedded in systems. And, um, and yes, of course, you could, you could the, the left says, no, that's not what it is. It's really just a legal framework, but that's not true. I mean, the, the, the entire idea of CRT is sort of infiltrated in various academic areas and eventually became sort of intellectually dominant. And I think the right stuff portrays it as, uh, you know, as sort of, uh, not, not everybody on the right, obviously, uh, you know, is teaching about slavery or history or anything that, you know, um, might not perfectly be in line with a 
a purist notion of what American history is. Again, I mean, you know, it seems to me what we want our, our schools to do is, um, is, is expose kids to different ideas. Um, that doesn't mean, and going back to what Andrew said, of course there's going to be sort of a thread that runs through it about what American history is. And, and I, I guess you can't completely obliterate that historical narrative, nor should you want to. But, but at the same time, you could, you could, I wouldn't, you know, even if we teach our kids, you know, America, about American idealism and what it means, what it means to be American and make that the dominant narrative, I still would want them to be able to, you know, read Howard Zinn or somebody like that and say, okay, well, I disagree with that and have the freedom to do so. And I think under this current regime, they're not allowed. <laughs> no, I look, I think, I think, look, there, there are questions and I don't know the answer to them is, you know, should public schools be patriotic? You know, for the betterment of, of our country and democracy, I mean, I, I, I think that's a valid argument. Obviously, that's a conservative view. And I, I'm not sure where I fall out on that. Um, you talk about Howard Zinn. I mean, I think almost every school now in public school has adopted sort of the Howard Zinnification of history curriculum, which is, a, you know, he is a very Marxist basis for this curriculum. Now, again, you get to what Paul said in, in high school or in college. Should that be something where you can compare different, you know, ways of looking at history? Sure. In, in K through eight. No, I don't think so. I mean, a lot to go broader on this. I mean, so much of this whole, again, well, for lack of a better term, CRT, which is not just race, it's the gender stuff, it's the trans stuff, it's sexuality. So much of this is age inappropriate, you know, and, and that that's part of it, too. Um, I do think I'll, I'll, I'll push back slightly on what you said, David, which is sure, there's some misrepresentation on both sides. I think the left is misrepresenting this far, far, far more than the right. I mean, the, the criticism that all of us get is, oh, you just want to tell your kid, no, you shouldn't learn slavery and Jim Crow. I mean, there's not a single person in this movement that says, don't teach slavery, don't teach Jim Crow, don't teach you know, the trail of tears, what we did to the Native Americans. I mean, that's just an absurd um, you know, view to have. But that is a lot of what a lot of us um, you know, hear in response to what we're doing. Yeah, yeah I would add, I, I felt the same way. And uh, I think what we need is to find a way to teach a saying, you know, the warts and all. So you have the warts, uh, but you also have a sense of common identity, e pluribus unum. I mean, that's what it's all about within the, Uni the United States. I mean, one of the functions of private school, I believe from its inception, was to create a common culture. And, you know, what what I think is what we're seeing in, in schools is really just, you know, just the end of... Uh, the end of a process and a, and a you know, and a particular impetus to take over the institutions by, you know, I'll, I'll just say it Marxism. I mean, it is identity Marxism in a way. So you're, so you're just, what we're seeing is really just as part of the elephant here mm -hmm. or the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole thing that's going, that's been going on in the culture for decades. And I think we need to name it. We need to, we need to call it for what it is. I mean, uh, they're trying to do people have you know a, a great incentive i'm not sure exactly why but a, a serious incentive to divide divide our culture and to exacerbate the the contradictions and accelerate the contradictions to you know rebuild to destroy and rebuild back better i mean that's that's and what does that mean well well the experts will tell you what that means yeah Paul, but that's a great point i mean this is so divisive even if it's well-meaning, which I don't think it is. I mean, you go back to affirmative action, even if that, you know, that was probably well-meaning um, and counterproductive, I think, in my view. This is so counterproductive. I mean, this leads to more segregation. This leads to enormous divisiveness. I mean, I think this ultimately tears the country apart if, if we don't reverse these trends. But don't you think, Andrew, I want to push back on that a little bit, that, that okay, listen, the core people who are involved with this who want to sort of tear down the uh, Western whiteness matrix, I get. I, I don't consider that well-meaning, even if they think they're trying to make society better. But don't you think that there are a lot of um, sort of soft, woke people out there who really haven't thought about this too much? They might not have the strongest critical thinking skills in the world, and they're hearing about this, and it sounds to them very much like every other civil rights uh, exhortation that they've ever gotten. And they say, okay, well, that, you know, if I'm going to help, you know, alleviate uh, disparity or make the world better, then I'm, I'm on, I'm in. I mean, can you, can we extend them the principle of charity in that or, or no? Well, to some extent, sure. To another, but, but, but it doesn't matter because this very woke progressive 
whatever the number is, 10% of America, you know, give or take, has really taken over everything. And it's certainly taken over the left uh, to the point where it's, you know, the whole cancel culture issue, right? It's cowered everybody else into silence. So I do fault people for not pushing back on that. I think the, the level of cowardice in this country is just off, off the charts. Um, yes, we know not everybody is these hardcore woke CRT people, uh, but they have managed, uh, you know, to to basically take over so much of America. You know, the federal government, the military, corporate America, clearly universities, K through twelve schools, um, and and so you know, I mean, we, we can, by the way. what's that? It's a very impressive endeavor in a way. I have to it say, is. like, like if it. you think about yeah. how did ten percent actually become so culturally dominant it's and, terrifying it's impressive yeah. and terrifying i mean you, right. you you know we all say the same thing now we you know and a lot you know you see the same thing on kind of covid stuff which is obviously even in, in, in a lot of ways even more controversial but you know i think a lot of us have said this uh you know now we kind of understand how nazi germany happened uh that you can whether it's brainwash people and i think in the covid side that's that's very true or just cower people into silence again i'll say what i said earlier more than half of the families at Brearley, and I believe more than half of the board of trustees at Brearley, you know, were on, you know, our side, my side of the letter, even if they didn't necessarily agree with every single thing I wrote. And yet almost, you know, publicly, nobody else speak up. Publicly, the board of trustees voted unanimously to, you know, continue, really double down on Brearley's anti-racism initiatives. And so this, this cowardice issue is just, just unbelievable. And that's what this, you know, small minority of very woke progressives have managed to do to our country. We have to push back on this. Some of us What's have your, to fight. What, I want to hear what your theory of cowardness is. Coward, this, why? Yeah, I, mean, I want you yeah. to answer that question. Why are people so cowardly? Well, I think there's a broader societal issue and then there's, you know, the people in schools. Uh, you know, the, the, the people in schools, I mean, obviously they're worried about losing their jobs. They're worried about getting their kids kicked out of school, losing their social circles, you know, if they're a board of trustees. And I found like, you know, the richer, these billionaire hedge fund people are the most scared to kind of speak up because they're worried about getting kicked off of all the other things and, and they have, feel like they have the furthest to fall. I think broadly speaking, though, you know, the center, the center left, which may not, which may not agree with what's going on, may not, may understand that these, you know, these CRT practices, these very woke practices are very damaging to our schools and our country. They are terrified of two things. They're terrified of being called racist, because that has become sort of the biggest slur that you can be called in this country. Uh, and they're terrified of being called conservatives. Um, which is, you know, and, and the two of those things has made it almost impossible for that, for those people to speak up. That's, that's my view. I like what you said about, sorry. No, go Paul. I like David. It's really, it is really important to maintain a, a principle of charity here. And, you know, we can, we can disagree with people's ideas or maybe the effects of their ideas, but, you know, I, I had great relations, maybe not the best relations, but I had pretty good relations with my colleagues, even though I dis disagreed with them. I knew them to be, you know, good people, even if they were so-called true believers. And I found, um, I found that they, you know, they had a certain vision of the good society, you know, and, and it was, that's really what they're aiming at. When I really think about the mindset that's, that, that my colleagues had, it was that reality is corrupt. And, you know, we are trying to head for this utopia or dream state, mm -hmm. right, where, you know, and the only way to get there is if we start tinkering with things and equity and we, you know, basically uh, rever uh, you know, reverse racism or trying compensatory racism and all the things that they do that seem so unjust to myself and other people are really done to try to manipulate into being this dream this future utopia, right? And so, you know, if you tell them, you know, they, this has been tried before, how'd that work out for you? And, the, and they'll say, well, you know, that was because they, it's so easy for them to say, oh, they made all these mistakes in the past. And, you know, this really, because of whiteness or whatever, you know, that it didn't work out, you know, but they, they're, they're, there's the number of justifications are there. And, you know, you can say, well, what makes you think that you're any different? Um, but they, you know, so they abrogated to themselves the power, you know, and the moral clarity that, that apparently no one in the past had. Um, but really what they're aiming for is a kind of vision of the good society, right? 
So, you know, my my vision of the good societies is right now, if everyone acts according to their conscience, you know, what, what Andrew calls courage, if, if people live with moral courage um, and stand up for people without an end goal in mind, you know, so that you don't have these these silly contradictory political stances, you know, that don't seem to make any sense. Like, you know, well, if our COVID mandates are actually very racist by Kendi's definition, you know, why, why should we? So, you know, so I, I just think that we're dealing with very deeply incommensurate worldviews and we are, but we are still dealing with good people. So we do have to remember that and, and we have to be patient with each other and to elicit these, these, deep deep differences even at the level of identity what does it mean to be existentially right their view is that society makes us who we are how we are seen is interjected into how we see ourselves as early as six months and there's social there's structural determinism to that like we only have we don't have the ability to define ourselves you know i happen to disagree with that view i think that we have that we have a conscience we we are you know divine beings that have the ability to transcend our environment, they form us to some degree, but we can make choices that overcome our programming. You know, they tend not to believe that's a thing. They tend to think that's a fanciful idea. I think, you know, this is a very, if we're going to actually get to know each other, that's one of the foundational differences that we have. Now I want to touch on two things that both of you said. I mean, Andrew asked about, should we teach, you know, should public schools be patriotic? And I don't know that, they should be. I mean, I think you know, classical education doesn't necessarily have to be patriotic. However, my concern is this is so much more than critical race theory. This is what you touched on, Paul. I mean, this is about teaching kind of Marxist theory, um, oftentimes wrapped in you know racial paradigms, but not always. And that's what that's what I don't. I don't think we should teach either way. We shouldn't teach Marxists. I mean, we don't need to te- you know have people. Um, you know, drumming in pa- pa- patriotism either, but I don't know that the, that there is this middle ground. Well, I think those. I mean, there's you know the opposite. Sorry, but, uh, you know the opposite of Marxist is is not necessarily patriotic. It, it's more free market capitalist, mm. Um, mm. and I think we should be teaching that now. What we have, and this is this goes beyond on this what we want to talk about here. I think what we have today is nothing anywhere near free market or capitalist society. And that's that's one of the problems. It's so easy to attack um, what's going on today. We have enormous income inequality. That's something that I've written right, a lot right. about, which is not a conservative right issue. Um, my reasons for why that has happened is different from most people's. Um, but we do have an economy, that I think, that fundamentally doesn't work. But from the theoretical perspective, you know, free markets or capitalist society is what has brought the world to prosperity, certainly not Marxism. So I do think, you know, you teach what Marxism is, you need to, because it has had such an important impact on history, uh, you know, in the last, you know, 100 or so years. Um, But I do think you teach, this is why we have prosperity. This is why we have freedom. These are these values. Now, do you teach America is great and America has never done wrong? No, I don't think you teach that. But I do think what you should teach is that you know, we were the only country in the world that was founded on values, on principles, and these specific enlightenment type principles. I do think that, and we should, I think, as Americans, be proud of that. I mean, we are still the country that everybody else wants to come to, right? We, we you know, so many people say this. Well, if our country is so terrible, if we are so racist, why is all these, you know, people from around the world dying to come here, right, for freedom, for economic opportunity? And I do think that, you know, we should be proud of that. Uh, and I do think that that is a message that schools, uh, certainly public schools, should come across. And I think to go further, what public schools, what all schools now are doing, it's not just not teaching that. Um, they are actively teaching children to hate our own country and to hate our history. Uh, I don't think society, we don't, we don't survive that if that goes on for very long. Let me push back on this idea that what we're being taught, what our kids are being taught is Marxist. It's certainly related to Marxist, right? But they sort of substituted uh, economic culture for economics. And uh, uh, there are a lot of Marxists, by the way, who despise this. There are socialists 
who really do not like this at all, that they would prefer sort of a liberal operating system, but a, uh, a socialist economy. So I, I personally don't like calling it Marxist, um, even though it grew out of a originally a Marxist framework, for, because mostly, number one, most traditional Marxists despise it and don't think it's correct. Some of those people who are maybe, the I'm not talking about the hardcore Marxists, but some of them may even be allies um, in trying to protect the our sort of social operating system. And um, and I'm not sure why why that's the best way of describing it, considering that like the, when you talk about uh, culture in that sense, it's really not the same as economics. It does. It it, it has. It, it, it obviously there's similarities, but just because two things are similar doesn't make them the same. So that's my pushback against sort of using the Marxist moniker in the current moment. Well, would you but, think it would be okay to then say cultural Marxism? Would that be? Does that fit more what you're? I don't know that it. I don't know that it gets you what what you want. Like I'd rather just describe what it is. In other words, yeah. what is it? It's this. I. It, it's got. In my view, it's got two core components. One is that um, is that racism and oppression are embedded in the very systems of society, and two that only the people who are adversely affected by it have the moral standing and the lived experience to define it for the rest of us. Uh, I mean, there's more to it than that. That's a simplification, of course. But but when you have those basic two precepts, the first is now is now sort of canonized by the second, right? If, if people can say, well, listen, I, I'm the only one that gets to define this for society, so you have to listen to me. And that's exactly what they say. It's a, it's a demand for deferring to their take on society. I, I don't, you know, is that Marxist? Well, Marxist Marxism really never made those sort of, I, I hate this word, but epistemological claims. They didn't say, you have to think this because I think it. They might say, you're, I'm gonna go to war with you over it. Um, because I think you're trying to hold this down. But, I mean, this uh, might be yeah, too. No, that's a that's a valid. I mean, I, that is a very valid uh, criticism there. I mean, and this um, might be too simplistic of a of the way of thinking about Marxism. And and I give you that. I mean, I think we should think. I mean, we are all proponents of critical thinking. But a lot of the frameworks that I see is this activism, right? So they're trying to activate. It's not education. It's activism that leads to like what Paul said: joy, happiness quote, utopia. That's a Marxist playbook. I mean, that we teach activism that leads to a utopia. It that is, is, it is a utopianism. Of, There's no, it's a brand of utopianism, no doubt. But that, but that's not what makes Marxist. It's, that's not its distinct characteristic. Can know? I, okay. can I, uh, can I step yeah. in for a little bit? Um, David, so, you know, what, what people have said, you know, I, I just got back from a three day seminar with uh, James Lindsay of New Discourses. He's a real thought leader in this uh, in this arena. Well. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the way he would describe it, and I think it's 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 accurate the way he sort of draws the line. If I can if I can be so sure. bold as to try to, you know, uh, characterize it is that, um, you know, there's Marx 1.0, which is Marx himself, you know, noting the. The, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and aristocracy and watching history unfold according to certain laws. Then you have Leninism, which is sort of Marxism 2.0, where you have, you know, a vanguard and you have, you know, praxis and state Marxism and so on. And then, you know, when that failed and collapsed, you have cultural Marxism, which you identify the Herbert Marcuse, the Marcuse, the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer, Adorno. And they're, you know, what they realized was, you know, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem because the middle class, you know, is actually prosperous. And so because people are happy, uh, they've hijacked, you know, the the contradictions of history. So we have to find a way to make people unhappy. Um, and so I mean, broadly, that's basically what happened. And they wanted, Marcuse himself wanted to create people who were maladapted to society in the 50s, 60s and 70s so that they would be, that they would accelerate the contradictions within society. And so you have, you know, he looked towards what he called, you know, the ghetto peoples, you know, black, the black underclass or, you know, white, uh, upper upscale liberals. He wanted to activate those and, 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 and sort of push those, um, you know, push those grievances to a point where they could undermine society. And today with wokeness from Crenshaw and CRT, we have sort of Marxism 4.0, which is called, you know, the, uh, Lindsay calls it identity Marxism, where you actually, locate the sources of power according to these power blocks 
and it's it's no longer you know just about um, it's completely divorced from the bourgeoisie and proletariat at this point. You know, so someone you know like you mentioned, uh, big Adolf Reed Jr. Which, you know, the, a lot of these thinkers, you know, they see all of this uh, Marxism 4.0 as sort of a bourgeois thing. Um, so I, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating sequence over the last 150 years that has led us to where we are. But so it, it combines the long march of the institutions through cultural Marxism with this new strain, which is, you know, coined as identity Marxism. So I but I, I really do believe, you know, that's what's going on here from Crenshaw. You know, the idea of a universal humanity where, you know, I am a person who is black to I am black. So it is a total reframing of recolonization of what it means of, of identity itself. And upon that, they layer diversity, inclusion, equity, all according to the framework of redistributive, uh, redistributing resources to these different groups. Yeah. Thank Can I say 30 seconds? Yeah, go ahead. I'll, two things, really quick. One is I think we should take the allies where we can get them. So, yes, I agree we should be careful who we criticize here. But I'll, I'll say, you know, socialism is not compatible with freedom. And anybody believes in both is a little bit confused. Yeah, well, maybe, uh, but right now well, I'll fight that fight later. It's like you know, one of the things I'm fascinated by is how the um, the new atheists made up with the religionists in the past several months. Peter Bogosian has actually written about this. Um, you know, he was the original new atheist on all the podcasts railing against belief in God, and then of course the woke uh, controversy came and it split apart the new atheist community. And now he's best of friends with you know with some of the religious folks who are opposed to it. And and the argument's over, right? The argument between him and the religions is over right now because there's a, you got bigger fish to fry. Right now we're just trying to protect liberal democracy and the liberal operating system. So whether you're right about that, look for many many years we many of us who regard ourselves as sort of a, a capitalist thought that. As soon as China liberated its economy, its political politics would be liberated as well, because there was an inextricable link between uh, free markets and um, and freedom of, of expression. Mm -hmm. And it turned out not really to be the case, at least in China. I know we have a China expert here too. So I, I'm 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 not saying that that uh, I do believe ultimately capitalism is more about just free trade and and the ability of people to uh, to exchange goods. It's it's also about it's also about freedom and it's inculcating freedom, but but I, I I think it is complicated. And I'm right now I'm very grateful to work with socialists on trying to preserve the liberal society. Me I too. I, I would yeah. work with a you know I'm a hardcore Marxist against to, to do that. So yeah, I may I may you know slag on Marxism, but it doesn't mean I won't work with them. It kind of reminds okay. me of the Lord of the Rings, you know, when they're all deciding to go to go return the ring to the Mount Doom. And there's the, there's Legolas and there's Gimli and they say, you know, did you ever think you'd fight side by side with a dwarf? You know, and then he says, oh, how about with a friend? You know, so that's a nice way of looking at oh, it. Ah, that's nice. Oh. Gimli's my favorite. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, Look, well, well. We need as many allies um, in this fight. We do. As we can get. But I thought that was really interesting, the Marxism, the, that, that identity part of it, because maybe traditional Marxists don't buy into this new Marxism 4.0, but there is that, there is a crossover there. Yeah, it's it's using like identity blocks, the contradictions between them and, and, and accelerating those contradictions to take apart the, you know, the, their focus is really about taking things apart. Because in sort of a Rousseau Rousseauian notion of the, the the divine, you know, the good nature of humankind will somehow make a better world on its own. If you tear everything up, then you know it'll make things beautiful and wonderful and glorious. And um, you know, it's funny because I had a long conversation with the, one of the DEI people at my school uh, when I was in the middle of all my troubles and. Um, you know, she, after a long conversation and listening to it, she really did admit that what she wanted was equality of outcome. I mean, she said, she said, yeah, we want equality of outcome. That's what we want. I was like, thank you. Thank you for just making that plain, you know, I, and we can disagree about that. And, 
I respect your right to believe that, but I will fight that. <laughs> but we can talk. It doesn't mean we can't talk. Mm-hmm. As long as we're talking, we're not doing anything. You know, we're not doing something worse. That's the problem with cutting off talking, which is what we have today. Well, we that, can't have these conversations. No. I mean, we can. Well, and that's part of the problem. I mean, especially about issues like race. It's just become this complete taboo to have, you know, and I wrote this in my letter, which is, you know, I, I call bullshit on the fact that they kept saying over and over that we want you to have the difficult conversations about race. No, they don't. They want to have very, very superficial conversations about race. I mean, when we had to do these training for parents, it was uh, these role playing. If you saw your daughter, uh, you know, sing along to some rap song that had the N word, what would you do? Those are not the deep conversations about race. You want to talk about why, you know, uh, you know, black girls are underrepresented really fine. Let's talk about that. Let's, you know, let's talk about that. But that is not at all what they want to talk about. Courageous conversations. So speaking of, thank you guys for, we have to do this again, even if we're not recording. <laughs> we need to well, next time I'll get something stronger than yeah. Poland. Yeah, right? we have to have yeah, our happy yeah. hours yeah. <laughs> together. Be nice to do this in person. It really would. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say hold my drink and the conversation gets real.